Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples on today's podcast, part three on the human soul. Ken's been talking about a historic Christian view of the soul, and uh, Ken, we've uh, asked and answered various questions about it. Perhaps you can give us a recap of the two podcasts for people who have not uh, listened to those yet, and then what we have uh, for us today. Yeah, happy to do so. Well, we've been exploring some basic questions about the soul. Uh, We talked about how classical Christianity has defined the soul, that it's an immaterial center for personal identity. We also made some connections uh, for the image of God and our, our soulishness. Animals are made from the dust of the ground, but humans are different. Uh, the dust of the ground, the breath of life, we discussed that. We also talked a little bit about um, the question of mind-body dualism. What is the nature of our body and soul together? And as part of that, we explored uh, issues relating to death in the intermediate state and the resurrection body of Christ. Then in the second show, we talked about uh, how sin has affected our our soul, how it curves us in on ourselves, that our actions become disordered, and part of the sanctification process is reordering our basic desires in in life. And we we postulated what will be the constitution of human beings in the eternal state that will be brought back together and will be uh, enfleshed for eternity. And uh, we also talked a bit about this idea of soul and how it relates to philosophy and psychology. So I think there's a lot of good content there to give reflection upon. And then our direction for this last program is I want to make a case for dichotomy, and I want to talk a bit more, uh, particularly about traducianism, kind of introduce some of the biblical data and let our listeners uh, think and reflect upon it. Wonderful. Well, a good place to start, again, for benefit of those who are uh, being introduced to these topics, is uh, how do we define dichotomy and trichotomy? Yes. Uh, so, obviously, di means two, tri means three. So, are we are we composed of uh, body, soul, and spirit? That would be the trichotomist position. Uh, that idea basically reflects the idea that our soul and our spirit are different realities. They are different parts or constituent parts of our being. So trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit. Dichotomy is more of a reductionist position. It says that we are we are the two parts of our being, if you will. There is a unity of our soul or spirit. Uh, and I'm going to make a case that the Bible uses those uh, uh, in in a way that one means the other. So dichotomous position would be would say we're in we have an immaterial soul, 
and then we have a material or physical body. So those are two views. I think classically Christianity has been has affirmed dichotomy, but there have been Christians who argue for a, a trichotomy. And I'm going to make a, a case. So I'm I'm putting on my advocate's hat now. I'm going to I'm going to affirm in a position. And I want our listeners to think about the arguments I make and weigh them. Uh, and and I think it's an important case to give consideration to. Wonderful. Looking forward to it, especially because uh, one of the scripture citations you're going to refer to is Hebrews 4.12. And that's one that comes to my mind as uh, uh, evidently affirming a trichotomist position. But I don't want to put uh, get ahead of myself. I just saw that that was in your list. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, I. I'm going to give you a source here that I like very much. Uh, it's Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Grudem is a Reformed theologian, uh, but I, I think his Systematic Theology has a unique kind of biblical emphasis. Uh, Joe, when you write a Systematic Theology, you could include more philosophy. You could include, um, you know, uh, de delving into many of those philosophical types of issues. What I think is characteristic of Grudem is he really puts forth a biblical case. And here is a quotation, which is a good place for us to begin um, giving a consideration for a dichotomous viewpoint. Uh, Grudem says, before asking whether scripture views soul and spirit as distinct parts of man, we must at the outset make it clear that the emphasis of Scripture is on the overall unity of man as created by God. And again, I, I think that that really is an important view. It's easy to think that the really important part of me is my soul. My body is just a, an, an extra. Or... Um, you know, it it could be that people think that the body is the is the whole thing. Uh, that Scripture speaks a, about us being created in the image of God, body and soul, a unity uh, of the two of them. And uh, when I had an illness that almost killed me, I realized that I got a brain in there and I got a body, and that body hurt. And and it wasn't just my body hurting; I was hurting. Uh, and I thought a bit more about the unity of the two. I hope uh, I hope you don't have to have a have a uh, near death experience uh, to learn lessons like that. But there are some lessons to be learned, no doubt. Okay, here's my here here is a uh, here's my first argument for dichotomy: di meaning two, a unity of body and soul, not body, soul, and spirit. The principal scriptural passage that describes the creation of the nature of human beings, and, and I'm going to focus there on Genesis 2-7, explicitly it mentions two basic aspects, material dust and immaterial, uh, the, the breath of life. So uh, again, this idea, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, 
and the man became a living being. So this isn't just any particular passage. I, th I think this is a significant passage relating to how God created human beings. And when it comes to the nature of being a human being, it mentions explicitly the dust, the physical, and then the breath of life, the non-physical. So uh, that's going to be my first biblical argument that when that the most important passage or one of the most important passages that speaks to this issue, it, it seems to begin with a uh, a body soul, a matter um, breath type of element. That's that's my first argument. Mm -hmm. Now, my second argument is in the Bible, the words soul and spirit are largely used interchangeably, sometimes as a form of Hebrew parallelism. Now, this is a very important uh, argument because essentially I'm saying, how do we understand the scriptures? How, When God inspired the biblical text, how is he using language about soul and spirit. So again, my second argument, in the Bible, the words soul and spirit are largely used interchangeably, sometimes as a form of Hebrew parallelism. Now, I'll explain Hebrew parallelism, uh, but let me look at a specific passage. Jesus says his soul is troubled in John 12, 27. And John, in the same context, says Jesus was troubled in spirit in John 13, 21. That is, in the case of Jesus before his crucifixion, um, he's going through a, a time of great trial and difficulty, anticipating uh, not only the physical pain, but whatever spiritual reality would result uh, from crucifixion. So he says that his his soul is troubled, but John also says that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So what's happening to one seems to be happening uh, to the other. Here's uh, Luke 1, 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It, it seems, Joe, that what happens to one happens to the other. Mary says, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Well, to glorify and to rejoice in God seems to be one and the same reality. Now, what is Hebrew parallelism? It's a poetic device that attempts to differentiate words with synonymous meaning. So, yeah, it's true. The Bible talks about uh, soul and spirit, but I think it is a literary device. I think it is a device illustrating the synonymous nature. So, let's go back to what Jesus said. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. Sometimes it adds strength. I don't think what's happening there is we're multiple parts in terms of our nature. Rather, I think it's a poetic way of kind of conveying and underscoring loving God in all that you are. 
So we want to we want to come to grips with how do we understand these particular passages? How do we lead out the meaning of these passages? And the Old Testament is written principally in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. We want to be able to engage in a in a fair-minded hermeneutical understanding. So I think that's a that's a significant argument. Does the Bible use body and soul uh, in in such a way that they're interchangeable? And soul and spirit. We're getting a device. Yeah. I think you meant to say soul and spirit. I'm sorry, soul and spirit. Okay, yeah. here's a third argument. The New Testament passage that addresses the totality of human existence mentions only two components, body and soul. Uh, here's Matthew 10.28. Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body that cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body, uh, both soul and body in hell. Uh, so here the emphasis is on our totality. Uh, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, uh, but cannot kill, kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, the totality of our being. What hell will be is the separation of our whole existence from God. And even the wicked, even those who know not Christ and are not redeemed, they will have some kind of resurrected body. Uh, there's a lot less biblical data about the physical nature of the wicked or the non-believer in Christ, but I think that's a fair implication. And so here's my third argument. The totality of human existence mentions two components. Okay, so think of those arguments we're building on. One, when God creates Adam, it's uh, the breath of life, the dust of the ground. Second, spirit and soul seem to be used interchangeably. What happens to one happens to the other. And now third, we're looking at the totality of what God will do with our being, and it mentions soul and body. Okay. There's a fourth argument. When discussing the when discussing the total being of humans, the New Testament uses soul and spirit interchangeably. Uh, let's look at uh, 2 Corinthians seven one. Paul writes this. He says, "Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates." body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So this idea, uh, again, relates to the totality of our soul and spirit. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of a reverence for God. Um, that's why I think it's a mistake to think that spirit and soul are different constituent parts of our being. Sometimes people will say, for example, that um, our soul reflects our mind, 
But then there is the spiritual component of where we relate to God. But I think what we see in Scripture is that what happens to one happens to the other. Okay? Argument number five. In Scripture, everything that the soul does, the spirit does, as well as the vice versa. Um, scripture does not convey that the spirit worships God, whereas the soul involves only functions such as thought, feeling, and will. Rather, soul and body reference the immaterial aspect of a human being. That's the point I was making just a few moments ago. Sometimes people say that our soul is a it, it is characterized in terms of functioning. It's our thoughts, it's our feelings, it's our will, but it's our soul that worships God. Uh, I don't think that that's correct at all. I think that what we discover is, uh, again, this idea that the soul does, what the soul does, the spirit does. What the spirit does, the soul does. And there isn't a clear delineation of, of constituent parts in this kind of context. Now, number six, and uh, then we'll come back to some potential challenges to this, but here's my sixth argument. The alleged trichotomy passages of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Hebrews 4, 12, have viable alternative interpretations, often as making a point of emphasis, focus on the whole or the essence of man. That is, I think, the passages that are usually cited, Joe, to back up trichotomy, they can be understood differently without, without compromising uh, an, an exegetical or, or a hermeneutical sense. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians uh, 523. Uh, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Read that again. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through and through. I think what is intended here is not to distinguish spirit, body, spirit, soul, and body as much as to say through and through the, the, the whole you, hmm. the whole you. And so the emphasis is on the essence or the wholeness, if you will. Now, um, the Apostle Paul, I think there is using synonyms as a point of emphasis is really the point I'm making. Now let's look at Hebrews 4.12, which is often the very passage that people cite in, in a defense of the trichotomist position. Um, whoever wrote Hebrews, uh, don't think it was Paul, uh, not sure who it is, um, this is what the author says, for the word of God is alive and active. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Sword, It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now, obviously, one 
way of interpreting this passage in supporting trichotomy is that see there is a there is a dividing line between soul and spirit joint and marrow uh thoughts and and attitudes my point would be to say this god's word penetrates the inward parts of man's being and the author of hebrews piles up synonyms as a point of emphasis it's not that we are all these parts it's a literary device to emphasize um, the fullness the wholeness so you know in 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 many respects a good theologian uh, whether they're a lay theologian or whether they're a professional theologian and i think uh, i always tell uh, the students i teach at biola when it comes to apologetics i say look you can't know everything uh, you can't, you know, have a background in every particular field, but to be an apologist, you need to be a pretty darn good theologian. You need you need to be an adequate theologian, and part of being an adequate theologian is being able to make one's way through the biblical text, exegesis to lead out rather than to read in eisegesis, uh, basic principles of uh, understanding scripture. So here's one more passage. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So some would say, well, wait a second, Ken. This seems to be indicating that your spirit prays but your mind is a different component than the spirit because it because the mind is unfruitful now here is an alternative interpretation praying in a tongue involves a spiritual act without full mental understanding now in the early church there were people who believed that they were given um, a heavenly language of prayer and there is a, a big debate about whether those spiritual gifts have been passed on today, uh, or whether there is a, whether you embrace a charismatic view, or you, you embrace some type of cessationist position. But even whether we go back to the apostolic period, or even if you're a charismatic or Pentecostal who believes in praying in tongues, it seems that a viable alternative is that praying in a tongue involves a spiritual act without a full mental understanding. So I don't have to separate soul and spirit or spirit and mind here. Uh, the passage doesn't demand that I do that. Okay, one, one more passage. Um, well, I, I want to make one more argument, and then I'll address another passage. Here's my here's my seventh argument for dichotomy. Interpreting scripture in trichotomy terms would force one to accept the idea that human beings are made up of four or five different component parts. For some passages mention other alleged components. Uh, think of heart, mind, soul, strength. So if you're appealing to these passages of 
body, soul, and spirit, then what do you do with heart? What do you do with strength? I think, Joe, this is an indication that it's a literary device. It's not a metaphysical um, differentiation. Uh, for example, Mark 12, 30, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Again, I think it's a point of emphasis. Mm -hmm. It's not a metaphysical differentiation. Uh, now, what do I think those seven arguments set forth? I think, uh, I think it makes much more sense, both biblically and in terms of reason or logic, to assert that human beings are a union of the material and the immaterial. And that it is it makes sense of how we interpret scripture, but also it, it makes sense in terms of how we differentiate uh, our our being. Now, not everybody agrees, but I think the classical position, and um, you know, Christians take differing positions on a lot of different things, but I think that this has largely been the historic. A Christian view. Um, now, someone as distinguished as our old colleague Dave Rockstadt differ, differed with me on this issue. Um, but that's my case. What, what do you think of it? Thoughts, questions come to mind? Uh, just a, a thought that I'd like you to uh, respond to. It seems to me that uh, with some of these passages that have been proffered as uh, uh, evidence for the trichotomy position, the way you've explained them was good. Uh, and it seems to me that we need to be careful when we say that we interpret the Bible literally. We all want to do that, but what what is meant by that? Uh, I think doing that can maybe get you in a little bit of trouble. I wonder if you might comment on that. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the, the Bible is a book of literature, after all. It, it uses literal definitions. It, it uses metaphors. Um, you know, the Bible has different genres of literature. Some are historical narratives. Others, uh, the, you know, the wisdom literature of the Psalms. So I think becoming a skilled reader of Scripture uh, requires us to grow in our understanding of how words and language are used. And um, I think a, a trichotomous position, in my view, strains the use of language. It's an overemphasis. I, I think this sometimes comes out, Joe, when people with good intention take the word sola scriptura, only scripture, I mean, some people would say, well, I don't read any theologians who are uninspired. I just read the Bible. Or, you know, they will say that I don't, I don't have to give consideration to uh, tradition or anything of that nature. I don't think that was ever the intention of sola scriptura. Scripture has a unique and final authority. Um, and I, I think when when we come to these passages of Scripture, 
we want to we want to be able to grow and to uh, to learn. You know, the backdrop of all of this is Christians are people of the book, and being literary people, being bookish people, believing that God has revealed Himself in words. Uh, then we we need to be people who are growing in our understanding of textual issues. And unfortunately, um, not only do we have at times anti-intellectualism in the church, or as Yaroslav Pelikan would say, that our churches are less than schools, but I, I think we also have a component where there isn't a lot of instruction about how to understand a particular verse, how to, you know, I don't want to take that verse out of its context. I want to look at what the, the narrow context is, the broader context, the book it's written in, you know, is Paul using a metaphor? Is he speaking in an analogy or is he being, you know, direct and literal in his interpretation? Uh, these are some pretty important points. And, uh, I think if you're to affirm sola scriptura, that scripture is God's final authoritative revelation, then you want to be growing in your understanding as to how to understand scripture. And, um, you know, again, this idea that our mind isn't as important as our soul or the spiritual part of us is more important than the intellect. I would say that God wants us to use all of our intellectual ability that we can. I mean, I, I don't have the mathematical capacity of an Albert Einstein, but I still want to be careful in my arithmetic and get my, you know, my budget correct. Um, I don't have the philosophical ability of maybe a Thomas Aquinas or a St. Augustine, but I want to be very careful in how I approach these types of issues. So it's it's important, and I've made my case, and I'm going to encourage our listeners to uh, kind of come back to that, to take a look at that, to look at these passages and uh, see what they think. And I want to cover one more area once again, Joe, before we close our series on the soul. I want us to come back to this issue of how does how does the soul come to be? How does the soul come to be? Now, um, I think the popular position is creationism. I th I think that's that's the more adopted position. That that how does the soul come to be? God creates our soul, and He unites that soul with the body uh, as the body emerges in the womb of our, our mother. Now, um, an alternative perspective to that is traducianism. And um, that would say that just as the mom and dad have the capacity to reproduce the body of their children, or to use a an important term to beget their children, because you beget your equal, you create that which is inferior, but you beget that which is equal. So the father eternally begets the son. They are equal in being. 
so traditionism says the body and the soul come from the parents. Now, again, th this is an interesting idea. Um, it's the minority position. But let me throw a little bit of support out. So I'm, I'm challenging our listeners now. Uh, just as I made a case for, for dichotomy, let me make a case for the alternative position or the less uh, accepted position of traditionism. Uh, for example, in Genesis 2-7, dust of the ground, breath of life, God breathed the breath of life into Adam, causing Adam to become a living soul. Scripture nowhere records God performing this action again and again and again. Um, so one of the arguments for traditionism, Joe, is it's the simpler of the explanation. God doesn't have to create a brand new soul for everybody who follows Adam that he did for Adam. So it seems to be built into the, the process. It's, it's part of the unfolding nature. Uh, here's, a, here's another support argument, if you will. Adam had a son of his own. Adam had a son of his own likeness, Genesis 5.3. Adam's descendants seem to be living souls without God breathing into them. Again, this idea that it, it seems that this is what God has created for humanity, and then it would, it would unfold. Here's a, here's a third biblical element or support. Genesis 2, 2 and 3 seem to indicate that God ceased his creative work. So, did he create uh, the capacity for humans to reproduce, which would include a soul? Or does he have to create continual souls? And here's one more. Adam's sin affects all men, both physically and spiritually. This makes sense if the body and soul both come from the parents. Oh, so let's think about original sin. So original sin would be the idea that we die because of, of Adam's sin. Uh, we become polluted morally because of Adam's sin. And we're guilty in Adam. So that third component would say, just as sin affects all men, both physically and spiritually, this makes sense if the body and the soul both come from the parents. Now, uh, the weakness of traditionism is that it is unclear how an immaterial soul can be generated from another soul. Uh, there are challenges to all of these views, but um, I'll bet a lot of people have not given consideration to this, this less, uh, less adopted position. Um, good source for this is uh, Shedd's Systematic Theology, WGT Shedd. Uh, now we can also uh, we can also bring up some criticisms of the traducianism. Uh, scripture differentiates the origin of the soul from the origin of the body. 
If God creates each individual soul at the moment it is needed, the separation of soul and body is maintained. So the weakness of creation is, is that God has continually creating new souls. So all of these positions have strengths and weaknesses, but I don't think traditionism maybe gets its careful consideration. Hmm. What, do, what, what do you think? Well, uh, it gives me more more to think about. <laughs> uh, one thing to uh, that would help uh, people who might be new is that uh, you can hold either view and be okay, right, Ken? That's right. I, I think either view is orthodox. Um, you know, um, some may have exegetical or bi biblical critiques of one or the other, but in my view, I think you can be thoroughly orthodox and be traducian or affirm creationism on the staff. I think Hugh and Fuzz are advocate of creationism. I I lean in the tradition direction. Hmm. How about some uh, sources? How about some sources here yeah. to kind of help us? Uh, well, there's a really good biblical source. I, uh, Joe, I I like encyclopedias. I like dictionaries. I I like to have knowledge right at my fingertips. And of course. One of the benefits of the internet is you don't have to go out and buy all of these books. A lot of time, many of them are uh, available on the web. Um, L. Wells Evangel Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. L. Wells Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. You could look up terms like traducianism and creationism. You can look up terms like dichotomy and, and trichotomy. Um, you can uh, go to some other other particular textbooks. I try to define terms in some of the books that I write about. So Seven Truths That Changed the World will define some of these uh, terms for you. But I think as uh, as Christians, we want to become people who... Uh, appeal to good resources that can help us think through these issues. Wonderful. Uh, by the way, traducianism is spelled T-R-A-D-U-C-I-A-N-I-S-M, yeah. if uh, somebody wants to look that up. Well, Ken, this has been quite a series. I really appreciate your thoughts on this. Um, I think people will really benefit from your, your comments and your uh, resources, but the way you've helped us think through all these things historically and the various questions that come to mind and biblical considerations, theological considerations, philosophical, even psychological. It's been a, a full-orbed uh, approach, and I really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad, and I I, I love this topic. I, I think it's awfully important, and you know, Joe, that I think the worldview that probably makes the best offers the best explanation of human beings is likely to be the true one. So I, I think the biblical ideas about humanity, what we are, who we are, I think they make a lot of sense. Wonderful. Thanks again. And thank you for listening. Give us your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken on X at RTB underscore K samples. 
and we'll be glad to read your comment or question here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.